Amen, friends. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 52? Isaiah chapter 52. This morning marks Palm Sunday. And one of the perennial questions that comes to our minds as we read the narrative of Jesus last week on earth before his crucifixion and the resurrection, we see this crowd welcoming him into Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna, joyful that the son of David has come to them. They're so confident that this king is the one who's going to deliver them that they just praise him. And yet, a mere week later, they're totally ready to cry crucify him. They're totally ready to say his blood be on us and on our children. One of the perennial questions is what could cause such a crowd to move from that joyous exaltation and hope to just utter disregard, utter despising of the one they were hoping in a week ago. This is what we remember and meditate on during Palm Sunday and during the first part of Holy Week. As we prepare to reflect on Good Friday on the crucifixion of our Lord. And then to celebrate with great joy the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. We first ask the question, why in the first place was he crucified? As I was thinking about what text for us to meditate on these things through, uh, I was reading through the book of Isaiah and came to Isaiah 53, which we'll get to, 53.10, where I'm always struck by the words, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And I noticed something I hadn't seen before. I noticed that at the end of that verse, it says that the will of the Lord prospered in the hand of his servant. And I was struck by that connection of this being the will of the Lord, this horrible death, and yet the prospering of that death, the, the effects of that death being made victorious. Um, And so as I was thinking about how to meditate on these themes for Palm Sunday, Isaiah 52 and 53 is the first text that came to mind, and it's what I thought would be beneficial for us and has proven good for my soul this week to reflect on, and so I hope it is for yours as well. I want to reflect on the question Why is something so life-alteringly important, so difficult to believe? Why is it so difficult, in other words, to put trust in Jesus as a suffering Savior? Why is it so hard to hope in him? For those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time, this question may seem irrelevant. Because, of course, it's easy to believe that Jesus is our only hope. Because that's what we've staked our lives on, and that's how we've lived for X number of years. And I'm hoping that through meditating on Isaiah 52 and 53, you can be brought to remember how unbelievable this hope is. Not in the sense of like how exciting, but like how difficult to actually believe that this is our hope. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, who are not yet Christians, and at the very least we have a bunch of little not yet Christians in here, right? For those of you who don't yet have hope in Jesus. I want to help you see how it is actually hard to believe in Jesus for some reasons. And yet, how much hope and joy and happiness there is when we put our trust in him, when we put our trust in the one who suffered 
in our place. Because in Isaiah 52 and 53, not only does it ask this question, why is it so hard to hope in this suffering servant? But it portrays the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see that this morning. I'm going to pray for us and ask God's blessing and help. And then I'm going to read the text for us. And I'll tell you exactly where we're going to read. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we come to your word and behold the suffering servant who is victorious, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in his victory. And I pray that you would help break down the barriers to trusting in his victory and to hoping in him, to offering him up as our only hope. I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith through your word. Your word does not return empty or void, but your word accomplishes everything you intend it to. And so I pray your word would accomplish among us this morning what you intend it to. And that we would leave changed to be more like Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Take a look at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. That's where we're going to start reading. And as we read through, we're going to find that this is actually another poem. I'm sorry for those of you who are not super into poetry. We're still in poetry. That's okay, though. We'll be in Matthew soon. Don't worry. This is a poem with five groups, five stanzas, they're called. And in each of these groups, the poet is trying to tell us something. We're going to see as we read through, he's going to make a claim in the first group. And then in the second, third, fourth, and fifth groups, he's going to give reasons why that claim is the way it is. So we'll see that, and I'll explain it as we go through. But for now, let's just listen to it together. Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was, has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil. With the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord and it endures forever. Amen. Let's turn back to 52. I had to turn a page in mine. Imagine you did too. Let's turn back to 52 and look at that first stanza, that first grouping of poetic words from verses 13 to 15. What we see here is the initial claim of this text. It's a claim that the victory of the servant will be unbelievable. The victory of the servant will be unbelievable. It starts off with verse 13, right? Behold my servant. Now, if you know Isaiah well, you know what that means already. But if you don't, that's okay. There's this theme in Isaiah of a servant who God will raise up that will rescue his people. See, Israel had massively screwed up and uh, forsaken the Lord. Even to the point of where in, in earlier in Isaiah, God is describing Israel as covered with sores from the amount of whipping he's tried to do to whip them into shape. And they still won't repent. They still won't listen. They persist in rebellion. This leads up to exile for God's people, being cast out of his promised land and being taken to be slaves in a foreign nation. And Israel is asking this question, what happened to the promises of God? I thought we were his people. And halfway through the book of Isaiah, after all these warnings and all this judgment, we read the words in Isaiah 40, comfort my people. Take comfort, take hope. There is still hope. And what we see is God reveal that he is actually going to rescue and restore his rebellious people. His people that had failed to be his servants. And the way that he's going to do that is by bringing this servant to come and do what they were supposed to do. And so when he says, behold my servant, he's bringing all of that background in to say, this is what your rescuer is going to be like. I will save and restore through this person. We know from the way that the New Testament picks up this language from Isaiah, that this is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we can safely read this as talking about Jesus because the New Testament authors do again and again and again and again. We have great confidence that this servant being described is Jesus who will restore not only Israel, but we know from the mystery of the gospel revealed in the New Testament that it applies to us too. This is how we be restored as God's people who have rebelled against him. 
So he says, behold my servant. And he says, my servant shall act wisely. Verse 13, my servant shall act wisely. Many of you, if you have an ESV, probably have a little footnote in there which says, or shall prosper. That's a fine translation too. The idea behind acting wisely is acting in a way that accomplishes his purposes, right? We saw that in Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is not just about knowing the right thing to do, but it's about how you live and how you act in a way that produces flourishing. My servant shall act wisely means my servant shall be victorious. My servant shall do what I've sent him to do. He shall act wisely. Second part of verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up. And she'll be exalted. This language of high and lifted up is only ever used in Isaiah of God himself. He here is saying that this servant will be exalted the same way God is exalted. Which is clearly what we see of Jesus in the New Testament, right? We read about in places like Philippians 2. This servant will be victorious and exalted. In other words, is what, Isaiah is, or what, what the prophet Isaiah is saying. The Lord is saying through him in verse 13. But something surprising about this servant is here. Verse 14 says, as many as were astonished at you. And then there's this little kind of parenthetical statement that tells us why were people astonished at this servant? He was so marred beyond human recognition. There was something about this servant that was so disfigured that they found it unbelievable that this could be the servant of the Lord. And he's making a comparison here in verse 14 and verse 15. Look at it says in the beginning of verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. I don't know about you, but that's confusing to me, right? So in just in the same way that they were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That comparison doesn't seem to make sense. But again, our footnotes are helpful. Or if you have a study Bible, it will mention this as well. If you look down at the footnote in your ESV, if you have one, mine says, or startle. This Hebrew word for sprinkle is kind of confusing. And so the translators are trying to figure out what does it mean? How is it being used here? I think startle is a much better translation because it makes sense of what he's talking about here. As many as were astonished at you, so also they will be startled at you. Two different things. Why? They were astonished because you were so disfigured they couldn't even recognize you. They were astonished at your suffering, in other words, at your lowliness. And they will be startled by what? By what he's already been talking about. By this acting wisely, being victorious, being exalted, being high and lifted up. Because those who are so marred beyond human recognition, that's not success. And yet the kings of the earth, it says in, the, in verse 15, will shut their mouths. They will be struck speechless. When they see what God is going to do through his servant. There's unexpected lowliness and unexpected success in the life of the servant. His victory, that's what I mean by his victory will be unbelievable. It'll be hard to believe. It'll be startling. It will be against our natural intuition of how God ought to work. We won't look at the work of the servant and say, this makes sense. We will look at it and say, what? That's what we ought to expect. That's what Isaiah was telling Israel they ought to expect. This is here the gospel in seed form. That God will triumph in an unbelievable way. Why is it so unbelievable? That's what the Isaiah 53 unpacks for us. Four reasons I see in Isaiah 53. 
Let's look at verses 1 to 3 first for the first reason. Why will the victory of the servant be unbelievable? The first reason is because he appears insignificant and ignorable. We see that in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53. Chapter 53 starts off, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who would believe this kind of servant is going to be the one who saves us? Why is it so unbelievable? Look what he says. Who to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, just prior to this, if you hold your place there for a second and go back up to verse 10 of chapter 52, we see the arm of the Lord. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What do you expect the arm of the Lord to be like? Mighty, strong, powerful. Earlier in Isaiah 30, the arm of the Lord is said to be the one that's crushing nations. But look what we see in Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 3. The arm of the Lord looks insignificant. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. A young plant. The picture is a little sprout. That you don't pay any attention to. And you might run right over with the lawnmower. Or a root out of dry ground is like, that's not going to last. There's no water for it. It's hopeless. Why pay any attention to it? No form or majesty. No beauty that we should desire him. The idea behind this is like if People Magazine named the ugliest man on the planet their sexiest man of the year. You would see that cover and you'd be like, what? That's not, I mean, usually you see that cover and you're like, I get it. But you see that cover and you're like, no, that doesn't make sense. That's what this is talking about. That's what this is like. This idea that he has no reason to pay attention to him. He is insignificant. Not only is he insignificant, but he's wretched. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, I'm grateful for footnotes because you can see it without having to look in the Hebrew. But if you see a footnote next to grief, you'll notice that it is talking kind of about illness. He was sickly, full of sorrow and suffering and sickly. Not in the sense, I think, Isaiah is not trying to tell us to expect the servant to have some kind of physical illness that plagues him all his life. What he's trying to do is he's trying to paint a picture of someone who is utterly wretched that no one wants to be around because of his suffering. So if you think about those around us, when someone gets really sick that we don't know, and maybe they're, maybe they're disfigured in a way because of their illness. What do we tend to do? We tend to hide our faces from them. We tend to look away in embarrassment. Because we, we don't really know what to say and we don't know what to do. But we know we don't want to be near that. That's what this is talking about. It's this idea that this man's wretchedness will make him easy to ignore and deliberately overlook. If he had a high school yearbook, he would be the one not pictured. This is what we're to expect of the servant. 
the holy arm that's going to save God's people. This man is the arm of the Lord. Imagine God's people trying to figure that out as the story of Jesus developed. This man, this one born in a manger, born in in noble circumstances and caused immediately to flee for his life. This man who is from Nazareth, and we all know nothing good comes from Nazareth. This man whose own family thinks he's crazy. This is the one that's going to save us. The victory of the servant, the victory of Jesus, is hard to believe because he appears so insignificant and ignoble. We look back and we think, man, he he doesn't look like that to me. But he does. If you think about how our world views Jesus now, 2,000 years later, he's still ignorable, right? Why would I care about a rejected Jew from 2,000 years ago? who was killed on a Roman cross. Why would that matter to me? Right? That's how our world thinks about Jesus, and it is understandable, because he seems insignificant. He seems easy to ignore. The fact that he seems insignificant and easy to ignore reveals how much our world teaches us to value appearance, to value outward significance and impressiveness, And it reveals to us how we have to, by faith, learn to value what God values. God didn't despise the servant because he was like a little young plant. God nurtured him. God didn't despise him because he was like a root out of dry ground. God watered him, right? God didn't hide his face from him until he bore the full weight of our sins at the cross. Throughout his life, God rather saw him as we ought to, as his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. In order to believe the unbelievable gospel, we have to learn to see that by faith. That's the first thing we learn from this text. The second reason that we see in the next stanza of poetry, it is difficult to believe the victory of the servant because God seems to be punishing him. God seems to be punishing him. This is what Isaiah 53, 4 means when it says in the second half of that verse, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So in other words, what happened is this servant came on the scene and he was lowly, despised, rejected. And then the people around him looked and said, man, he must have really upset God. He must have really done something bad to deserve this, right? This is the same kind of thinking of Job's friends. When Job is just utterly brought to his knees in suffering, what do his friends come and do? They say, Job, you need to figure out what you did to make God angry and you need to repent. This is the same kind of thinking that's still in the minds of the disciples in John 9. When they come across this man blind, born blind, and what do they do? They say, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because clearly that's the only reason he would suffer this much from God. And so our natural inclination is to look at the suffering of the servant and say, man, he must have really screwed up. But if we look a little closer, we begin to recognize that it's our griefs and sorrows that he cares or that he carries. Right. Beginning of verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But notice all the pronouns here. But he 
as a pronoun, he, was pierced for our transgressions, right? The, 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 the penalty for the sins that we've committed pierced him, not us. Or he was crushed for our iniquities. Why was he crushed? Not because of the bad things that he had done, but because of the bad things that we had done. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. This servant, this suffering servant, Jesus, by his beatings, we were made well. That's what's happening here. He looks so wretched, not because he himself has been really horrible to God. He looks so wretched because we have been really horrible to God. Because we have lived in rebellion of God or against God and our rebellion is indeed wretched. What this is teaching us is that the suffering servant was our substitution. Theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus is taking the penalty, penal, penalty, in our place, substitution, to make us right with God, atonement. We are being made right with God, not because we are bearing the punishment for our sins, but because Jesus does. And we look at that and think, man, that's pretty wretched. He must have done something to really upset God. We still struggle to believe this, I think, even now, because when we see this in Jesus, what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to us and showing us what our sins do in fact deserve. And even in a church like this, where we have a good doctrine of total depravity, the idea that we're all sinners and deserve punishment, we can still tend to think our sin is not actually that serious. It's probably, you know, I mean, it's pretty bad, but Jesus is good and it'll be fine. It's kind of how we can be tempted to approach it. And when we look at the suffering servant and wretchedness that made people want to turn their face away and hide from him, What we see is our sin is really bad. The consequences of our sin are really, really, really severe. Jesus holds up a mirror and shows us what our sins deserve, and we don't like that. So we're tempted to hide our face from him. We don't want to see how bad we are, because who would want to see that? The reality is, though, to believe this unbelievable gospel, we have to, through faith, come face to face with our own sin and rebellion, the seriousness of it, the wickedness of it. We have to go deep into that hole to grasp the offense against a holy and righteous and just God by rebelling against him in order to believe and embrace and join the Savior in victory. So we see the second reason that it's hard to believe the victory of the servant is because God seems to be punishing him. And we'd rather believe that than that our sins are so severe. The third reason we see in verses 7 to 9. The victory of the servant is unbelievable because his death makes his life seem pointless. His death makes his life seem pointless. 7 to 9 is 
really capturing what happened in Jesus' last days on earth. What happened in his death. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We see this in the narrative of the gospels, right? Jesus is standing accused of all kinds of blasphemy. And he doesn't defend himself. He goes like a lamb to the slaughter, not helpless like a lamb, but willing for some reason, because he knows the plan of the Father. He dies in obedience, not opening his mouth in objection. Even though it would be right for Jesus to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, these are not my sins that I'm bearing. These are theirs. But Jesus doesn't do that. He bears it with a quiet dignity. Not only that, but he bears no sins of his own. Right? We see that towards the end of verse 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verses 7 to 9 start and end with mouth. And it's talking about how Jesus conducted himself. Quietly accepting his fate because it was the will of the Father and he was being obedient. And guarding his mouth so that he did not sin against the Father. Jesus himself died. He died obediently and innocently. And this is what makes his death all the more look like a failure. Because you would think if someone was obeying God and had no guilt of their own, that their reward ought to be great. Everything you see in scripture tells you that. That God rewards the righteous. That there is blessing that comes from obedience to the Lord. And yet what do we see as his reward? Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. In the midst of this trial he was not given a fair trial. He was convicted. The, The gospel accounts say they're searching for false witnesses. And they can't find a false witness good enough. To actually condemn him because he's so righteous. Until finally they figure out that they can accuse him of blasphemy against the temple. And then they make that really flimsy charge stick. And then they go and they beat him. And they put a crown of thorns on him and they mock him and they crucify him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Not only that, but this next line. As for his generation... Who considered that he was caught out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? What Isaiah is asking us to think about there is Jesus himself, as a single Jewish man, living a righteous life, but ending in a death with no descendants, was like the high point of Jewish failure. It was all about offspring. All about kids. Because that was the promise to Abraham, right? It's understandable that they thought this way. And yet, no one considered that here's this righteous, suffering servant who has no offspring. No descendants. His name is going to die. He's going to be buried. And we're going to all forget him. That's what it looked like. Not only that, but they kick him while he's down. In verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We might think when we read the gospel narratives that like 
being put in Joseph of Arimathea's grave uh, in, in, as, as a placeholder was, it was like a good thing, like an honor thing. But in Jewish culture, it was not super honorable to be mar- buried with the rich. Because repeatedly, the Old Testament condemns the rich. And so when he says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, what Isaiah is saying is they heaped insult upon insult on this servant. They, they even tried to get him at his death. Every sane person looking through the eyes of the world at the narrative of Jesus' life and death would conclude that it was an utter failure. It is understandable because the manner of his death and the reward he got from our perspective, from worldly eyes, seems pointless. Not only that, but the life he lived seems like the exact opposite of the kind of life we would want. Think of this. He was insignificant, check. Ignored, check. A life filled with sorrow and suffering, check. Bearing the sins of his enemies, check. Enduring an unjust unjust trial and conviction, check. Mocked and killed by his enemies, check. Buried in shame, check. Does that describe the kind of life that you want? doesn't describe the kind of life I want. And yet, this is the portrait that we see in the servant of God of what it looks like to obey God's will, to trust him, to walk in righteousness. It leaves us wondering, how could this possibly be the mighty arm of the Lord who's going to save his people? How can this lead to victory? We tend to judge success, again, by worldly standards. And by worldly standards, this does not look like success. In order to believe the unbelievable gospel, we must learn what success looks like through the eyes of God. Because this is success. This is not failure. This is, like he talked about at the beginning of the poem, the servant acting wisely. The servant succeeding and being victorious because there is an exaltation to come. So that's reason number three. His death makes his life seem pointless. Reason number four, that the unbelievable gospel is difficult to believe, is that his life and death, what we see of it on the surface, his life and death makes the will of God seem foolish. Because we'd be tempted to think, maybe the next movement in the poem, like we know this is God's servant, we know this is God's arm, maybe the next movement in the poem is God making lemonade out of these lemons. God like, you know, it was, it was pretty bad and the people rejected him and that was terrible, but God came in and saved the day. That's what we would hope, that's what we would want. But look what happens in verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord. To crush him. He has put him to grief. We can be so familiar with that idea that it's easy to pass over and just read and not think. But it's like, what? It was the will of the Lord to crush him? 
This one who, according to verse 5, was crushed for our iniquities, that was God's idea? This one who was afflicted with grief, that was God's plan? And you might think, well, God had to do what he didn't really want to. No, the word here is not just will. It's, it's, it's desire. Or sometimes we translate it delight. And I think those concepts are here. The plan of God, the will of God, the delight of God was in crushing his son. That seems utterly foolish in light of everything we've read so far. But it's not. It's not. It doesn't make God foolish and it doesn't make God mean. Rather, it's for a particular purpose. And God is perfectly willing, like we've seen already in the Psalms of Lament, to subject his people to momentary sorrow for the sake of their eternal joy. Right? We've already talked about that. And here's what God's doing again. Look in verse 10, the next line. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is probably one of the most confusing and uh, uh, difficult to translate lines of this poem. And I am again grateful for the ESV footnotes. Because then I don't have to tell you to take my word for it. You can see for yourself. So in the ESV footnotes, it says, mine is number seven. Or when you make his soul an offering for guilt. And I think that is a much better way to translate what I see in the Hebrew there. When you make his soul an offering for guilt, what does that mean? That's a condition. When you do this, something will happen. And what is the when? When you make his soul, or in Hebrew that word just means life in general. When you make his life, his person, an offering for guilt. What Isaiah is describing here is that this broken, beaten Man is the one that you and I are called to offer up as an offering for our guilt. Just like in the Old Testament, they would offer up lamb and bulls and goats. They would have the Day of Atonement where they're providing reconciliation with God temporary through sacrifice, through blood sacrifice. And what we see here is that instead of blood of bulls and goats... What we're called to offer up on the altar to God is this broken, beaten, suffering servant. When you offer him up, look what happens. When you make his soul an offering for guilt, then he shall see his offspring. Notice he's no longer cut off. Then he shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When we offer up Christ as our sacrifice, as our only hope, that's when the will of God makes sense. That's when the desire of God prospers in the hands of Jesus. Because that's what he came to do. That's why he endured all of this. That's why he came as an insignificant, ignorable person. That's why he was so wretched That others wanted to turn away from him. That's why he bore. Even unto death. Your and my sins. Is so that you and I could offer him up. As our sacrifice for guilt. And. Then. All the victory comes. His. Seeing his offspring. Prolonging his days. 
the will of the Lord prospering in his hand. Isaiah continues, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. When? When you and I offer him up. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And you shall bear their iniquities. When? When we offer him up. When we put our hope in him. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's victory language. The battle has been won. The war is over. And they're dividing the spoil. And he says, notice, I will divide, this is verse 12, I will divide him a portion. Not just himself, but with the many. With those he calls to himself, with those he brings in to the kingdom of God and reconciles with a restored people of God. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When we do this, this is how we share in the victory of the suffering servant. This is how we share in his joy. But friends, this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks of all. See, we want to offer up our best on the altar to make ourselves right with God, right? We want to fix it. We recognize we broke it and we're like, I want to make it better. You might think you're not tempted to do that. You might think you know better, and I would say you probably do know better, and I know better too. But how often are we tempted to bring to God as the reason for why he should accept us and show us favor our own obedience and efforts? I know about you guys, but I'm all the time, right? Like I screw up and I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to make it better and then I'll come and, and I'll come and talk to you about it, right? Ever do that? No, we're supposed to take the broken life of this man and offer it up as our sacrifice and say, God, yeah, I've screwed up. And this is evidence of how bad that is, that this is what it took for you to make it right. And yet this is my only hope. This is all I have. Lord, please accept this sacrifice. This is a stumbling block for the world. Paul, reflecting on this stumbling block, said that we preach Christ crucified and it seems like foolishness, right? I want to read for you what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. He says this, Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Though it looks like foolishness, for this to be the plan of God, to bear his holy arm this way, And to save his people, it is actually the wisdom of God. But we don't want that wisdom. We want to treat it like the foolishness we think it is. We don't want our only hope to rest with the wretch of a man. And yet it does. Friends, this is what we see from this text. This is the main thing I want you to know from this text. I want you to take away. And that's to share in Christ's victory. To share in Christ's victory, we must accept his unbelievable life and death. The only way to share in the victory of Christ is to accept 
his unbelievable life and death by offering it up as our only hope through faith, right? To accept, to believe, to trust that this sacrifice is sufficient and this sacrifice alone, even though it looks insignificant, even though it looks like God himself was punishing him. We know he's not. We know it's because of us. Even though, even though it looks like his death was pointless, it's not the case. We know it's not the case. And our only hope comes from offering this up. The cross seems foolish to the world because victory comes through defeat. And we're tempted to think it's foolish for us too. But friends, do not do that. Don't be like the crowds during Holy Week who concluded that as the picture of this suffering servant became clearer and clearer, they concluded there's no way this can be the Messiah. There's no way this can be the arm of the Lord who's going to rescue us. It has to be someone else. This guy must just be a kook. And so they cried, crucify him. Don't be like them. Be like Peter, who in the life of Jesus told him, where else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Or be like Paul, who reflected on Christ and said, surely he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Trust, believe, offer up this suffering servant as your only hope. He's our only hope. He's all we have. Offer up his life and then do what Isaiah calls the people of Israel to do in chapter 54. What does he say in verse 1? Sing, O barren one. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. In other words, through this man, through his brokenness, through this apparent defeat, victory is here. Sing. That's what God commands of his people. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful that your wisdom exceeds the wisdom of the world. God, this is not how I would do it. And how I would do it would be an utter failure. God, your ways are not our ways. They're so much higher, so much wiser. And so we praise you. And we ask you to help us. Give us faith to believe in the unbelievable victory of Jesus. And give us faith to offer him up as our only hope. Guard us, Lord, from bringing the other things we would bring to your altar as reasons why you ought to show us favor. Help us as we come to your table to come really with only Jesus in our hands. And we pray you do these things for our good and our eternal joy and for the glory of your great name. Amen.